Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 29. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate all your support. appreciate all the feedback you've been giving me, too. Thanks for all the great kind words and the, even the constructive criticism. I appreciate that. Again, there's no ego in this fight for me. I do love hearing from you and love hearing what you want to see on this show or hear on this show. So again, thanks for all your support. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, audible.com. They got a slogan there. They said, make your smartphone smarter. And I love that because it's hard for me to catch up on all my reading, you know, with all these interviews that I'm doing and I'm getting more and more coming down the pike and uh, some great interviews and, and great leaders and things to learn from. And a lot of them have great books and I love to read, but I can't catch up. I just don't have enough time. Well, audible.com is the solution. I can download it to my iPhone. I can listen to it as I'm driving into work. And uh, it's a great way to catch up on all the reading. They got a special offer for all of all of you out there. Go to doseofleadership.com slash audible and you can uh, download a free audiobook. and you can also catch up and look around for 30 days and, and see what they got to offer. And if you don't like what you see, there's no obligation. You can, you can, uh, you can opt out, but I think you won't because it's a, it's a great source. Once you start listening to audiobooks, I guarantee you, you won't stop. I know it's, that's been my case. It's been a great help. Again, doseofleadership.com slash audible. You can also, if you go to doseofleadership.com and you can click on the multiple banner ads that I have, it'll take you to the same spot. So again, thanks for all your support. And uh, I think you're really going to like this interview with General Honoré. He was the uh, commander during Hurricane Katrina. He's a great army commander and I love talking with him and I hope you enjoy the interview. So enjoy. Well, Lieutenant General Russell Honoré is a three-star general who burst upon the national scene back in 2005 when New Orleans was in dire straits following Hurricane Katrina. He was a commander of Joint Task Force Katrina and was put in charge of the massive search and rescue operation and the restoration of order in New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast following that terrible storm. And, of course, in doing that job, he certainly showed the whole world what authentic leadership was all about. He now lives in Baton Rouge. He spent 37 years in the Army. And he continues to serve in a whole number of ways. He thinks of giving back as an essential part of patriotism. So you can see him nowadays as a public speaker, a business consultant, a senior scientist for the Gallup organization, and a CNN contributor on the topics related to disaster preparedness. He's got a new book out titled The Leadership of the New Normal. And it addresses ways that we can make this world a better place in which to live both at home and abroad. And it's chock full of all kinds of practical lessons on how to be a better leader and uh, observations on topics such as how to become a, be a better parent and the virtue of helping poorer countries develop at a quicker pace. General Honoré, what a privilege and honor having you on the show. How are you today? Well, thanks, Marine. Richard, good to be here with you. Well, guys, you know, I, I read the book and was funny. When I read that, I opened up the first chapter. I, I, about a year ago, I started opening my presentations with Thomas Paine's The American Crisis. And... Uh, Wow, it, I thought it was so fitting when I the first couple pages of the book, that exact passage that I open up my presentations with. I said I knew this was going to be a great book, and so uh, I, I think it's a great way to open the book. I love Thomas Paine. I love that story about George Washington and and how he was kind of drove. He lost every major battle in New York and pushed across the the Delaware River, and then 
it all looked lost, right? And then here, here you had this common man write these inspirational words, and Washington had it read, and it kind of, as a lot of historians said, it, be, it turned the tide for the for the the revolution, right? Well, yes. I mean, when you look at Washington's army, uh, as you eloquently said, been defeated in every battle. He's, uh, his formation has uh, five days left on the enlistment, and they're going home. Yeah. It's Christmas. It's cold. And uh, he was uh, his back was against the wall. And, uh, as you said, our capital in New York had been burned, and one of Philadelphia was threatened. And on Christmas, Washington decided to do an attack at night across the river. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he achieved a tactical surprise. And that night he killed and captured nearly a thousand British soldiers and kept the revolution alive for six more years. So it was a significant action. But I use that story in, uh, all the time in talking about leadership and where we are today in the country. And it's uh, had uh, Fox News and CNN been there, maybe. Uh, they would have told the people in the country, hey, Washington, there's no way for him to win. All he's going to do is go out here tonight and get all these boys killed. But Washington knew what he had to do. He had to win that battle. He wouldn't win the war that night, but he could win that battle. Yeah, they, cer- they certainly had the a rough road. for his history, as we might say. Yeah, the, you know, there, there certainly was a rough road ahead. And, and I think if put in perspective just how bad it really was, and you're right, and you talk about that in your book, you, kind of in the opening about we are in a whole new normal and, um, of course, I'm a big student of history, and you look at that, and you're right. We are in a, in a whole new normal, and sometimes I get down about it, and I don't know. And, you know, looking at history, and you say it repeats itself often. And, and But talk a little bit about what, that new normal. You hit some great points in your book about how things are so drastically different. I think a lot of it we know, but I think we, I think we've, we forget just how fast things change, even in five years ago how think fast things change. Can you talk? Yeah, well, I mean, that was a new normal for America and the world when the uh, this uh, a Continental Army under General Washington's command defeated the British and, and won our freedom and proposed this great concept of democracy. You know, that our people were inspired by this promise of freedom that had been uh, presented in, the def- in our declaration which is only six months old uh, prior to that battle. Yeah. Uh, and the words of Declaration of Independence were powerful in that King George III asked the people in England to pray that the words of Declaration of Independence would never come to fruition for he knew it would be the end of his form of government. So, I mean, this is it. that was a new normal for the world for us to take on the British win and then create a democracy for a government for the people, by the people. Uh, and uh, that was powerful. And when we talk about the words of Thomas Paine and why Washington hadn't wrote, most of Washington's army couldn't read. Yeah. They were literate. They were not well trained. They were not well equipped. That brings to the point that uh, what our forefathers did for us, the sacrifices they made, set the conditions for every generation of Americans to be prepared to make that sacrifice to keep our country free for the next generation. The concept of the new normal is, I certainly think in the course of history as written now, that our winning our freedom from the British was a new normal because it, it changed the world and, uh, uh, and this concept of freedom that people could be self-governed. 
and, and not by uh, someone who's appointed by their lineage or their heritage. I think the other thing you pointed out is that this uh, concept of freedom comes with a great price sometimes that includes sacrifice. That the concept of patriotism, as we talk about it, is uh, uh, patriotism is 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 a powerful word that people throw around. But I, my definition of patriotism is that it is it's it's more than a word. It requires actions. Yeah, and it's not just individual action; it's community action. That each one of us in the space we live in have to remember we not only have personal security, personal economics, uh, personal health and welfare we concern with, but the collective uh, well-being of our community where we live. So what would it mean to live on the highest mountain in the town and everybody else around you is destitute and poor? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't work. <laughs> the model don't work. No. So uh, that 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 new normal that those first Americans created has been repeated over and over. I think probably the uh, World War Two started a new normal. Yeah. I think we certainly had one that everybody listening here could probably reflect on. Nine uh, eleven created a new normal for sure. It changed how we live as Americans, even how we get on airplanes and. What we do, whether we wear our shoes, I mean, it changed America. And I think this new normal we're in today, uh, we are still reeling from uh, 9-11 and the impacts of Katrina because it made people to rethink the role of government and what self-reliance and self-resiliency means to us as a people. Yeah, what I love about the American crisis story, the Thomas Paine story, and it, it like I said, I, I mentioned earlier that it, sometimes I do get a little down and worried and it seems overwhelming. And I guess you're right. You think back to 9-11, which we're going on, you know, 12 years now. And um, I guess, and you talk about this in your book, with, with that happening, that how terrorism can strike anywhere, the advent, the, just the exponential growth of technology, how we can communicate. I mean, nothing is – everything is so interconnected and interrelated and integrated. And, and, and Katrina was a huge kind of a slap in the face. And we've seen it in some, some snowstorms. We've seen it with the tsunamis, the couple that we've had in the last 10 years. And how things can get so – everything is so dependent upon everybody else that one minor disruption, and it throws right. everything out of whack. And I don't think it was like that 20 years ago. And you put – you had a great example in your book when there was a snowstorm up in New York and Mayor um, Booker was handing out – you know, and it, looked, it was great and he had the great PR and the great kind of visual of him passing out diapers. Yeah. But yeah. And, yeah. You, and you and you and you and you ask that question, you know, ten years ago, you know, do we really are we at a point where we're expecting to get diapers handed out to us? And you know, I never looked at that that concept, and it's amazing that with all the technology, all the things, the advancements that we had, it almost seems like there's there is a higher dependency, uh, an almost um, 
a lack of inf- general information about of everything. I, I, you would think that with all the technology, with all the advancements, with all the information, that we would be smarter. But it seems like we've kind of gotten dumber and more dependent. Am I wrong on that, or what do you think? Well, I kind of share your observation there. I um, one of the things in my trade in trying to get people to be prepared is I'm, I'm very cautious not to blame the uh, survivors. Yeah. That, that that cautionary note being said, let me give you this observation. Data clearly show from Gallup and FEMA, only 15% of our country, as we live here today, take any actions to do anything toward for being prepared for the most likely even natural disasters that might occur in their communities. That being said, uh, the resilient, the, 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 the idea that if something happens, uh, the government is going to come take care of me, or the idea that talking to a group of college students recently that uh, had the opportunity to go to college, paid for by uh, taxpayers uh, at public university, and all they have to do is have a B average to get into the university and then maintain uh, uh, a little better than a C-plus to stay in the university, uh, and them complaining about that program is in jeopardy. Uh, and they said, well, you know, it pays for my tuition, but it don't pay for my books. Hmm. You know, where in the hell did we get this notion from? Yeah. That the, the community, the state, the people are going to pay for your college. Where did we get that notion from? I mean, where did that sense of entitlement? You know, before uh, 9-11, one of the big incentives for the military, reserve, uh, and National Guard is that they would offer a kid, hey, if you join the reserves and the National Guard, we'll pay for your college. Right. That was a big incentive. Then all of a sudden... Take states like Georgia and uh, Louisiana, where I live right now and where I was living. They, they came over to the lottery and said, hey, we're going to take that money. We're going to send these kids to college. Well, guess what? That's what they're doing. So we're raising a whole other generation of a concept of entitlement that people expect somebody else to pay their way through college. And at the same time, they're riding to college in brand new cars. Yeah. Now, go figure that out. Yeah, you know, you think back, you know, think about your grandfather, your great, not even that far removed. Think about what your grandfather went through. What Think about what your father went through. And, you know, right. my father grew up in the Depression and the Dust Bowl, and you, right. hear, the, and you hear those stories, and, and that's not that far, that's not that long ago. That's just one generation, and, and myself, I, I worked my way through college. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. my grades weren't good enough to get a, a scholarship, I'll be honest <laughs> Right. <laughs> But I worked my way through college and, you know, took a little loan out. And it's the best investment I ever made in my life. Right. But there are, there are a, a lot of kids today who believe that, you know, somebody else ought to pay their way through college and they ought to not have any loans. And, and what I remind them, Richard, is this. Look, I'm not worried about your college loan. Because you know what? There's no train. There's no bus waiting at the end of town once you finish high school, sending you off to World War I, right. World War Two, 
or Korean War or Vietnam. You know, all those big conflicts have been won. We've changed the way we man the Army, the military, I'm sorry. Uh, there's no demands for you to go have to serve two to three years your country in peace or war. So there's no train in the bus waiting for you, able-bodied people to send you off to war. I mean, all you've got to do is go to school. You understand what I'm saying? Right. And if you think about the sacrifice, let's say on D-Day in World War II, where we lost 9,000 men in one day. Right. That's that almost as many men as we've lost in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I know it. In over over you know, 12 years. That that generation made so we could be free. And you sit here and you complain because somebody's not paying for your books. Right. Give me a damn break. Yeah. You know, I kind of lose my patience with them because I, I remind them that we are doing what we're doing today based on the sacrifice of those who have preceded us. Yep. And we should uh, remind our kids, number one, ourselves as parents, and then speak boldly in the community about this expectation that somebody else is going to uh, pay for your college or pay for your higher education. Should it be a low-interest loan? Yeah. You know, should it be affordable? Yeah. But where is that self-sacrifice? Yeah. I mean, what good, uh, what do you have that you appreciate that you obtain without sacrifice? You're right. I mean, everything worthwhile is, you know, comes at the expense of hard work, you know, and a lot of sacrifice, like you said. And, um, and that's, I guess that's what scares me the most is, is, you know, and that's why I talk to World War II vets a lot. And in my previous podcast, I've, I've always mentioned, you know, the World War II vets and I talk to them and, and because I am blown away by their sacrifice and what they did, and and you're and you're right, you you mentioned uh, Normandy and D-Day, nine thousand dead in one day. You know, I mentioned Iwo Jima a lot. You know, a two an island that's two miles wide and four miles long, and you know, seven thousand dead Marines and twenty thousand wounded Marines and twenty two thousand Japanese dead on this one island. And, and that's just right. amazing, you know. And and then you're right, and it's not that you know, one death is is too many, but as put in perspective, and it's as you said, you know, there's been five thousand deaths in both Afghanistan and in Iraq in over twelve years, you know, or and it's and it's not to take anything away from that, but again, it's just I think we've, I guess it's a part of the product of you know, part of it's a product of our success and and that we are a successful nation, but at the same time. Um, and every generation where we're living right now, we think we're the generation that matters, right? And I, and that's why I'm I'm a big student of history because I think you can learn so much from it. But it it frightens me a little bit, you know, especially looking at Katrina and remember how how um, chaotic that was. And you know, let's talk about that if you don't mind. There's a lot of things I'm curious about that day. And you open up your book with with three um, lessons that's in your book and about how we can all become better leaders. That's part of this podcast. And and there are you said and you learned this I think was it your grandmother or your mother that told you this I can't remember in the book that it said anyway but it says do do the routine things well don't be afraid to take on the impossible and don't be afraid to act even if you're criticized and you said in your book you thought you had all these kind of pretty much figured out and here you were you know 
been in the Marine Corps 30 plus, I'm sorry, the Army for 30 plus years. And then you got hit with Katrina and put in charge of that. And talk a little bit about that. And you were kind of taking, you know, you thought you knew everything there was about, you know, deciding to act and criticizing all those three things, but they all kind of came into bear, didn't they, during Katrina? Yeah, absolutely. I, I arrived there. Katrina hit Wednesday morning. At the time, I was the 33rd commander of the 1st U.S. Army out of Atlanta. And uh, our responsibility was to assist civil government in times of with the uh, defense support as needed. And uh, we deployed and then got appointed to go into New Orleans, which was just outside of my area of responsibility, which was Mississippi. And uh, we, uh, my helicopters hadn't been uh, moved into the area because the storm was still ravaging the northern part of Mississippi on Tuesday, as you recall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I drove to Mississippi, and uh, the, the uh, USS Baton Navy naval ship uh, was coming out of Houston, had six helicopters on it. So a Baton uh, was made available to me. And one of the helicopters from Baton came into Mississippi, picked me up, and flew me into New Orleans. And as we were flying in the city, uh, and we landed there at the Superdome, that, that point, too, came to my uh, recollection that uh, uh, I thought, you know, having been in Desert Storm as a battalion commander and many other pretty dangerous operations uh, over that 30 years in, in service, that this thing came to mind. Hey, look... Uh, I thought I understood was don't be afraid to take on the impossible, but I saw it that day. And um, from that point forward, we figured out uh, what that really means is uh, start finding solutions, uh, set your priorities, make sure everybody understands what the priorities are, and uh, uh, keep people informed the best you can that you're trying to work with and help and make sure the team gets stronger every day. So uh, that's the solution to not being afraid to take on the impossible. And then the last piece, uh, over the days that followed, uh, we were beat up pretty bad in the media, which we probably deserve. If you were a victim of that storm or somebody watching it from afar who, who really uh, saw what was coming through the lens of the, the national cameras, that showed uh, people suffering and waiting to be evacuated, uh, that is, um, don't be afraid to act even if you're being criticized. And uh, those uh, three lessons learned actually from one of my public school teachers when I was leaving school oh, that's right. and going off to college, was that, was that where that quote actually came from. But it, it speaks to, uh, in the new normal, I think uh, leaders, and we all collectively have to play a role as leader at some point in time, Um, need to do the routine things well. We need not be afraid to take on the impossible because we've got to remember leadership is not about doing what's popular. Leadership is a performance sport, not a popularity contest. And then that point three, uh, don't be afraid to act while you're being criticized because uh, we see leaders more and more today when something happened, they send the public affairs person out, and they don't step out there themselves. Yeah, that's what they what people are looking for is is the leader uh, projecting themselves when when you got the good, the bad, and the ugly happen. Yeah. 
You know, the thing that seems so challenging, and I was a, about five years ago, I had a communications job, and that was really my first foray of dealing with the media, with the hotel company I worked. And, man, I tell you, and you talk about it in your book a little bit, too, about in the whole idea, and I talk about this in some of my presentations, that, you know, it doesn't matter really sometimes what the facts are, and especially as leaders, you have to understand that perception is reality. And that's an unfortunate fact of life. And certainly with Katrina, man, oh, man, and, you know, you're down there on your ground. And even a perfect example, you were talking about how how was George Bush, your boss at the time, perceived. And we all know the story about that, and he, and he was beat up pretty bad. And it was kind of a, a challenging situation. And you think, and you talk about in your book how, you know, he made the decision not to go there on day one because being the president, there's a lot of security, there's a lot of um, – uh, technical details and disruptions of obviously bringing a president somewhere, so he decided not to get in the way. Well, that kind of backfired on him in a sense because what did everybody say? What was the perception, right? There you go. There you go. Uh, absolute, a great example, and one that uh, I know and um, every president I ever dealt with, they, they want things to go well on their watch. Yeah. And they will do anything to make that happen. But in the case that uh, the, the script had already been written and pounded on by many people even before he landed back in Washington, why he didn't stop and go on the ground. It would have made very little difference, nor would it uh, uh, help in his assessment of how bad the situation was. It wouldn't have helped. I mean, that's why you got mayors and governors, you know, yeah, right. but they get people. And uh, his uh, mission was to get people there. And um, that is that... Um, piece about being acting even while you're being criticized because just about every uh, media event opened up on uh, what we had screwed up or hadn't done yet. And uh, the lesson there is um, focus on your mission. Yeah. Our mission was to save lives, uh, evacuate people, provide food and water and medicine to the people. And as uh, long as we had everybody in the formation understanding that, uh, we were able to eventually accomplish that mission and, and, and pay very little attention to every criticism that started out, well, why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that? Yeah. Uh, so a... we ain't stupid. The storm had a vote. It <laughs> flooded the city. That's right. That's right. Before a wall of water, something that hadn't happened before. So... Uh, we ain't stupid, and nobody want to see this happen. This is this serves nobody well to see this this happen to our country and to our fellow Americans. Yeah, and I think that's you. You hit on the point that I want to really want to drive home is that okay? It's easy to get caught up, and I know I've even dealing with the the press when I had that when I worked at the hotel company. You know, and the, I thought I had this great relationship with this reporter, and I then I, when I see the story, it was a completely different slant, right? Yeah. Well, it's easy to get caught up in like, well, because you want to make yourself look good. And then you start chasing that story instead of, like you said, focusing on the mission. And I thought, man, Katrina must have just been – that's the ultimate test because you're right. You're just getting hammered every which way with all types of misinformation because – and that's the, that's the challenge of the new normal because it is so instantaneous. You know, 30 years ago, would, you know, they'd have to fly film on an overnight flight to get us the story you know, halfway across the world. Well, now, you know, the other side of the world instantaneously knows what's going on. 
Well, and you know this concept of the, the direct satellite broadcast, the media themselves, I did many uh, um, uh, after-action reports with the media after Katrina going and do these editorial boards. I guess I did four or five of them. And my observation to them was, um, hey, look, you were reporting a lot of stuff that you didn't investigate. Yeah. You know, you talked to some guy on the street, and the guy would tell you, hey, there were five murders in the um, Superdome last night. The next thing we know, you've got a reporter on national television, all of them yelling at you, hey, I got something, I got something. And um, y'all were not taking the time to check those stories out, you know. And that in true itself created a lot of perception on people part, uh, not how bad the storm was, but how bad government was. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that they created, and I think many of them learned a valuable lesson during Katrina from talking to them and looking at some of the internal writings between reporters that uh, took a knee afterwards and said, okay, what were we doing here and how we were doing it? that uh, uh, they have to stick to their editorial principles of somebody telling you something and you go and check it out. I mean, you, as a reporter, uh, just like when you and I were, were training in the, in the armed services, you would never ask a question to a unit commander that you didn't know the answer to. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't ask a tactical question if you didn't know the answer. I mean, you had to have an idea what the hell you were you know, what this mission was about. So that same thing when reporters ask questions for which they have no idea what the answer, then they don't take the time to go check that out. They're putting it straight into the satellite. That caused a lot of problems. Yep. Um, Not in the response, because I don't think it slowed it up at all, but it created a lot of problems in people's confidence in the government. You understand what the role of government is. Right. And what then? What the role of people themselves to have uh, some degree of resiliency? It also exposed the impact of these disasters on our vulnerable population. And who I'm talking about is the elderly, the disabled, and the poor. Yeah. And you know, Richard, they make up about a third of our population. Yeah. You know, going back to the you know i just thought of something on the you talk about in your book the decision making piece and one of my big pet peeves is and i think of what a lot of our problems both in business in our personal lives in leadership in general is this ability to get people to make decisions i see in every aspect of life particularly in business particularly in disasters like you had. I mean, you were put to the ultimate test. You had to come up with decisions. How do you deal with those, the, the, the elderly? You know, because that was the big challenge. You know, what, what about the hospitals? What about the nursing homes? How do you get, or what is your philosophy? Talk to me about how important decision-making is. I come from the background of that. I think if you've got 75% information, it's kind of that 75% solution, make a decision. As long as you know what the purpose is, and as long as that decision is aligned with your purpose and your value. How challenged, how tasked were you how important was decision-making in that whole Katrina exercise? Uh, yeah, it was very important. The big thing was to keep a focus on the priority of work because you could be easily taken off your priority of work, uh, and that was important. The, the other thing is to make sure that um, uh, those some of those first reports coming out 
were, were quickly uh, proven to not to be accurate. And, and that took a couple of days to get the handle on that. You know, when the chief of police in New Orleans told a reporter on Thursday afternoon that he had been up in a helicopter and snipers had shot at it. Oh, gosh. Well, that ended up directly on national news. Yeah. He, he, made, he was a what a reporter supposed to do. The chief of police told me that. Well, did you go check it out? Did you get any information? Because it's about 6 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. The storm came in on Monday morning, as you recall. Yep. I get a call from the White House and said, hey, Darrell, are there snipers in New Orleans? I said, no, I don't think so. Because, you know, we're, we're looking at if there are snipers, we will, we've got options to uh, do something here right now. I said, well, no, you tell the chain of command there. I don't think there's snipers. He said, well, find the chief of police, then get on national television and tell the American public there's no snipers. It's exactly what I did. I went and run the chief of police down. You won't believe this, Marine, but this guy, he told me, he said, uh, I said, chief, where did you find snipers? Where did snipers find you? And he said, well, John, I was in a helicopter, and they shot at us. I said, number one, chief, how in the hell you know yeah, how did it you was know? A, a shot at you? <laughs> and where do you get this where you can hear uh, 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 a gunshot round in a helicopter? Where, you know, where does that come from? You know, that comes from watching too much television. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I said, did, did you get hit? No, but they were shooting at us. I said, look, Chief, uh, I don't deny the fact that somebody might have seen the helicopter took the shotgun and shot in the air to try to get your attention because they watch too much television. But you ought to know better. You understand? Yeah. Because if a sniper shot at you, you probably would not be here talking about it. Yeah. And when you use the word sniper, you change the whole complexity of the problem. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Show me the holes in the helicopter. Well, you know, he didn't hit it. Well, why did you use the word sniper, chief? You see what I'm saying? I mean, when people uh, uh, exaggerate the situation, it can cause a lot of problems. And let me tell you, that was a very tense evening in New Orleans that Thursday evening. Uh, and then I went on national television and uh, just made myself available to a couple of reporters. And they all asked, are there snipers? And I emphatically said no. Gosh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you reined all that in. I just can't even imagine. How did you get a handle on what was the good information, what was the bad? I mean, how did you... You obviously had to delegate a lot of a lot of it, but yet, who did you start to rely on? I mean, how did you start getting good information funneled to you? Well, it goes back to that that photo you and I have seen in Washington on the front of that boat at the Battle of Trenton. Yeah. Uh, this was an action inside the United States, so it comes a lot to where the leader is on the battlefield or where the leader is in the boardroom or in the company, that I knew this was going to be an operation inside the United States, and I needed to go forward myself as opposed to appointing a deputy commander or a subordinate commander to go on the ground. 
they all could have space, but I needed to go myself and not sit in that elaborate command bunkers like we had over in Iraq, where the generals sat behind the wall and watched computer screens. That this was the United States and I needed to be on the ground. By being on the ground, uh, the day after the storm happened, uh, I could talk directly to mayors. Yeah. And I could make decisions. I didn't have to ask myself if I, if I could do something, if you understand what I'm saying. And as the, as the Army commander and then the JTF commander. So I think it speaks to the importance of learning some of those enduring principles of leadership, going back to Washington and field commanders even before him, to be able to have a sense of what's going on by being forward in the operation and not being 300 miles away sitting in my air-conditioned headquarters. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I remember watching that footage from 2005, and I remember that you know when they were talking to you and everything, I remember you were out there in in the field actually so and you you're right you contrast that with some other disasters or some other war yeah you're right there you're going and, and you're in this air-conditioned briefing room with all the video screens and everything else so yeah you're right it goes back to some basics that really is lacking and even you look in business today one of the number one complaints you know, that i've seen with uh, employee surveys yeah. it's consistently there that I never see my boss, I never see my leader, I never see my supervisor, and for some whatever reason, as leaders, we feel like we got oh we got so much to do, emails and all that stuff, and you would be so far better served if you just walked around every day and see what actually is going on. You know, you don't have to, you know, you don't want to breathe down their neck and get in their way, but just have a presence, and that well, goes. Well, you know, I go around and I do speaking, and I get to do a little informal consulting with companies. By just asking a few questions, they'll bring me in for motivational speech, and, and I'll, I always ask them whether they they make um, widgets, digits, or you know things that go boom in the night. And I ask them, say, well, "What's the most important asset in your company?" And nine times out of ten, they will talk about that new and improved computer program or this thing that they're about to come out to the market with and sell. It's about stuff. Yeah, it's not about the people. So I let them go through that, and uh, I remind them that the most important asset is the human capital, not stuff. Yeah. Because it's human capital, people that create stuff. And I know I'm talking to a solid, strong company when people start off by talking about the people. Because you know what? You can be in the software business tomorrow. You can be in the hardware business uh, two weeks from now. You understand? Yep. You can be in the trucking business today, or you can be in the shipping business three weeks from now if you got the right people. Yep. You understand? Yep. You adapt and overcome. And uh, you focus on the accomplishments of your people, not about stuff. Yep. But I think many times leaders get confused with what makes them famous or infamous as opposed to what makes the company run. And it's people that make companies run. Yeah, definitely. And you can see the difference in those companies where they value their employees. Yeah, we, you know, a lot of companies even give a lot of lip service. But you're right; it's it's so easy to say, but it's so it is so simple. And I don't know why we don't know it more. Is put put more stock in in your people. A couple of the things that we want to talk about before we wrap up here is is, and I always like talking to former military, especially high ranking officers, and, and the concept of planning. You talk about it again in your book. And I, I love what you wrote there. 
But I love what Eisenhower said after when he was planning D-Day, you know, ultimate planning exercise, right? Year yeah. and a half, couple of years worth of planning. And I loved, you know, I don't know if it's a true, but the myth is, you know, once he gave the green light and put everything underway, you know, he crumpled up his plan and threw it in the trash and said it's underway. And he always says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, plans are useless. Planning is indispensable. And I love that because a lot of times what I see where I work in the aerospace industry, very long um, schedules, timelines that take two years, billions of dollars of money to be spent to get certified. And it's like you never see, you know, it's it's always, wow, it just seems so overwhelming. And so everything's, well, if we just had the perfect plan, everything would go well. Well, that's not true. And, and you don't plan to um, – to have perfection you plan so you can deal with the unforeseen and that's what i love about planning and plans so what's what's your take on it oh i think you you've stated the 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 high point there very well uh uh having a plan gives you the ability to audible off the plan right <laughs> yeah yeah because as you said the plan never survived contact with the enemy yeah in this case, it's with a disaster. So you've got to do what we've been taught as uniform members to adapt and overcome. So you don't stay focused on the fan. You stay focused on the task. Right. And when you stay focused on the task, are you getting the results you're supposed to get? Are you achieving the objectives? Are there any surprises here? So uh, it's a thinking sport. You know, if I may use that analogy, I mean, you've got to be thinking. You've got to be adjusting. So, uh, but you go in with that plan and uh, the function of practicing it and everybody knowing the information behind it, I think gives leaders and organizations the ability to call that audible that need to be called when something changes. Weather can change your plan. The If you're fighting the enemy or your competitor can change your plan. Uh, so you just don't go out and say, well, the plan is in operation. We're all going to the golf course now. No. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got to uh, vigorously and passionately uh, supervise the execution of that plan. Yeah. And that's why in the back of that book, another reason I put the old trickling procedures that you and I learned uh, coming up in the military, because I do think they, they're still applicable today to businesses as well as to families on, on how we do our business and, and leading. Agreed. The last thing I love, the last thing I want to talk about here, and um, the time is just going way too quick, but I love what you write in the book, and I don't see it enough in books. And I love it because I've, I've personally failed at this, you know, and I was focused on the leadership. I, w- I would say for the better part of my career, um, I focused my leadership and my success, and I put so much stock in the job that I was doing. And I, at the sacrifice of my family and being a good husband and being a good father, and I love what you wrote in the book in there, and you and you say that you know leadership at home is the hardest, and I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I don't think we talk about that enough as leaders. That your leadership responsibility at home is m- so much more important than it is in any career that you're doing, in any of the job that you're doing. And I appreciate that you put that part in your book, you know, near the end. And so, talk a little bit about that and how you've uh, give us some wisdom on over your years and, and what you've seen and how you've kept the family together and the importance of all of that. Yes, sir. Well, that, the concept there is to save your best leadership for when you get home. Because actually, leading at work is easy compared yep. to leading at home. For sure. 
And uh, if you look at the home uh, as a family uh, and as a team where people work together and live together and grow up together, uh, it puts it puts them in contact. But, again, to reemphasize the point, leading at work is easy compared to leading at home. And leading and saving your best leadership when you get home, I think, when you come to that realization, it, it empowers you to not take your leadership hat off when you get home. Exactly. But you keep it on. It's the methods that you use to achieve that, which is to keep the team together <laughs> and to help shape and raise those kids so they can be successful. And I'll give you an example. We raised four kids. Uh, we moved 24 times. And I served 37 years, three months, and three days in the military. Uh, both our girls, we moved them to senior year in high school, uh, going to a new uh, Army post. But the idea was, rather than leaving them behind, it was better to keep the team together. Right. And then that whole concept of learning the importance of saving your best leadership at home. I, I use our oldest child. Uh, that uh, when that child was born, a girl, you know, when I come home in the evening as a as a senior lieutenant and a captain, you know, that the first few months this was a pretty simple operation because it just sat there in a the basket, you know. Right. And then over time, you come in one day and this little creature meets you at the back door. <laughs> <laughs> then in another three months, it not only meets you at the door, it grabs you at the top of your combat boots and climbs it way up <laughs> in your lap, you know, and you're yep. sitting there and you're trying to eat and this just won't let you go. But then a couple of years will pass by and you come home and you said, well, where's daughter number one? Well, she's uh, next door. A couple more years pass by, you know, the 12, 13, so where is she? Well, she's spending a weekend with a friend out in the country or in another subdivision or another housing area, okay? Then you come home one day and this thing is about 16 years old and say, well, what happened at school today? Nothing. <laughs> what did you learn? Nothing. <laughs> Who did you see? Nobody. <laughs> and they're sitting there with some, uh, uh, with metal and stuff coming out of their face, and they're all dressed in black. <laughs> so, th th this is not a fad. This is a leadership challenge you have here. Yep. You understand? Because something has happened. You understand? Mm -hmm. This is a leadership challenge. So, saving your best leadership for when you get home comes to a fundamental responsibility that people. Uh, that have kids, that have jobs, that are working, have a moral obligation to make sure that these kids are successful. Yep. Because they are our future freedom. So we've got to make sure these kids are successful. We've got to invest our time in them. So saving your best leadership when you get home, uh, I think, Maybe one of the most important observations, again, I've learned that from my life work, but I also use it as an Army command. I had uh, hundreds of field grade officers and senior non-commissioned officers, and you know how things happen. A, a report will come in on a Monday morning, and we had a great colonel over the weekend. The military police had to come to his house, pick him up. He roughed his son or his daughter up. And so how the hell that happened? 
well, how good is this guy if he's beating up on his kids? Right. You know? Is he really that good? Yep. So how did that happen? Again, it goes to that piece, save your best leadership at home, because we've got to raise good kids. Every one who, uh, who have kids uh, should have a moral obligation to raise good kids because they are the future of freedom of our nation. Well said, sir. I think that's a good way to end the interview, and I, I appreciate that. And um, I love your book. They can find you at generalhonore.com. Honore is spelled H-O-N-O-R-E. I'll have a link on my website. The book is titled, let me get this right here, Leadership in the New Normal. It's a great book. I read it in about two days. It's a nice size, nice, easy read, and it's chock full of common sense, which is what this show is all about. General, thank you for coming on the show. It has been a true privilege and an honor. Well, thanks, Richard. You're going to turn out to be one of my favorite Marines. Success. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.